Uh, okay, um, this is the quote-unquote breaking into comics panel, and um, it's such an odd concept for me. I was thinking about it, and because uh, when have you broken into comics, and what does breaking into comics mean? Um, and so I think we should be able to have a lively discussion. I'm joined by Pia Guerra. Hello. Uh, Brandon Graham. Hello. I wasn't supposed to be here. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was not on the original approved list from Fan Expo uh, Canada, but apparently it's okay. <laughs> and Ty Templeton at the end there. I'm okay. also not approved by anyone. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, so as I was saying, this weird contrast, and Brandon and I talked a bit before. Brandon and I have done a bunch of interviews together for my podcasting studs. Um, check it out, www.inkstuds.org. Um, and for us, like breaking the comics, what does that mean? When have you broken the comics? Uh, and then Brandon had a, a funny thing that I should do that I'm not going to do. Um, of no, you have to. Thing. You don't get to no, introduce it's, a funny I, I have thing to make a whole song. I, I wanted. <laughs> it was. I was. I was saying that it would literally just be Robin sitting here with a sign that said nepotism and not talking. <laughs> Which I don't know if it's funny, but <laughs> is it? It's an art piece. There we go. Conceptual. <laughs> Um, so I guess, how to start this, like, what is breaking into comics? What does that mean to you? Is there a point where you're like, I've broken into comics? Well, I think, I think what the conversation really is, is, is on different levels about what going from doing it for, for yourself and, and, you know, and, and, and eventually going into doing it for, for money and paying your bills with it and, and the attention you get from it. So I think there is a breaking in. Like, there's no breaking into doing art, but there's a breaking into um, money. <laughs> um, so maybe, because, uh, I mean, the three of you come from pretty varied experiences uh, within comics. So maybe what are some of the things um, you learned along the way in your early days of things that really helped you connect, um, things that didn't work? Well, I broke into comics officially long ago that my story is not useful to a modern audience because uh, I broke into comics back when um, uh, there were only a few publishers instead of 6,000, which we have nowadays. And um, what happened for me was uh, I was uh, a musician. I used to play in piano bars and sing Misty and uh, the theme from uh, Casablanca and stuff for money. And a friend of mine um, uh, who liked comics and knew that I liked comics, he had a story published in a small magazine called Vortex Comics in Toronto, where I, where I live. And uh, he came to me one day and he said, hey, these idiots paid me. To, uh, to draw a comic book story, why don't you do that? So I went, okay, and I went up to the office and I brought a couple of samples of a comic strip that I'd done uh, for my high school paper. And I more or less went, this is what I do. Do you like it? And they hired me to do a single issue story that was like 10, 10 pages long. And after I got finished that story, they offered me my own series. And then after three issues of the series, DC called. So that's not really a, job, a way of getting it that most people can do. Because at the time I was doing this, there was only about three or four independent publishers at, at all. There was like Fantagraphics, Vortex, and a couple of other ones. There weren't very many. And so just getting published back then 
was a giant leap forward in a way that nowadays getting published doesn't mean much, because there's an awful lot of people who make a living doing this getting published and still don't get noticed. But back then, there was probably only 50 or 60 titles on the stands. So if you become the 61st title, pretty well everyone pays attention to that because there's just not that many titles. But nowadays, I think we're up to 350 monthlies. So if you're the 351st, it's very difficult to get noticed in a way that it wasn't in 1983 when I did it. Yeah, yeah and I'm interested in Pia's thing because Vertigo specifically, they love to watch people jump through hoops. Yeah, um, I, I don't think they like me at all. So that, I think wine was a way of getting rid of me, and the time kind of backfired on them, which was nice. Um, <laughs> I'd heard that story, but I don't understand the, the log I, logic about like. It's a long story. I, I'll tell you how this it. But uh, I was breaking into comics at the time in the first wave of a gazillion publishers, which was in the early nineties, and it was also the time that all these companies bit off way more than they could chew and were falling. In, like they were all crashing at the same time, and it was a really terrible time to be trying to break in because there was a few books that I had started working on. It was easy enough to find the gigs, but the gigs wouldn't be there by the time you finished the book. The publisher would have gone under, you wouldn't have gotten paid, and it felt really terrible, and you'd have to try and find another one. So, towards around 95, it was getting really bad, so I was working on whatever I could find, which was I uh, managed to get some work on storyboarding for commercials, uh, worked for uh, Legends of uh, Legends on White Wolf. I did a lot of role playing games with them. Uh, their, their gaming manuals. I just illustrated a bunch of those because it, it was there and I could pay the bills with it. And but while I was doing all these things and trying to to, I was sending samples to big companies and getting a lot of not a lot of responses. I was also making relationships at conventions mainly at San Diego and I met Heidi McDonald around 96, 95, 96. And would just keep her updated every year or every few months, you know, like this is what I'm doing now, here's some more samples. And she's like, Yeah, I really wanna work with you on something. So right. she was continuously trying me out. By around 97, 98, I was, she was trying me out several books. I did a lot of samples and a lot of rejections. And I think the reason was because Heidi and Karen were always button heads. Right, and Heidi's now much more of a uh, like a comics press person? Yeah, she's uh, moved on to do her own uh, comics. But back then she was she was Vertigo or, or within that office? Yeah, she was in uh, one of the editors at, at Vertigo under Karen and uh, she was working on several books and uh, she was doing really well. She was a really great editor to work for. She was the type of person who she would look at your work and go, oh, here, read this, this will help. I see what you're doing here, fix that. But looking at this first. So right. she was really amazing for And that. before she was an editor, she was part of the fan press, so she really knew her stuff. Yeah, yeah. She looked at as an editor also at Disney uh, Digest yep. for a while, and then afterwards she did Comics Pete, so she's still working on that right now. And Amazing Heroes. Sorry. Amazing Heroes. Yeah, no one here is old enough to remember Amazing Heroes. <laughs> 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 we've we've just been joined by another. Yes. Another. Sorry. Hey guys, how's it going? My name is Kari Andrews and I just showed up late. I'm sorry, but I'm happy to be here. I feel like we, we should have actually talked about who, what work we do, because I was up here talking to Ty and, and Let's do it. being like, you did, you did that? Um, well, you wanted to find out what Ty did Oh, I, I heard he worked on Spider-Man, I had no idea. He was like, yeah, for 15 years. No, I didn't work on Spider-Man for years, I worked on Batman for 15 years. Okay. Spider-Man was only about three years old. Fifteen years on Batman, and I missed it. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> he he I, was in Critters, though. I was I, I was there for the whole fifteen years. I don't know why you were. 
I was reading those amazing heroes. Um, so, so Ty, should we go into to what people would know your, your work from aside from? Because I just knew your creator own work. Uh, well, I suppose we should go through the whole room then. Um, I'd like to think I'm not the only obscure version of it. Um, uh, what I usually say to people when they ask me what I do, I say name a comic book character I at some point have written and drawn it. Uh, I drew Justice League for a while. I wrote and drew the Adventure of Batman for many years. I did Spider-Man fairly recently. I did uh, The Simpsons for quite a while as uh, um, Pia knows a few things about The Simpsons since The Simpsons are in her house all the time. Um, uh, if you, if you yeah, his, his, his husband writes a lot of the yeah, Simpsons Ian Boothby's, Yeah, Ian Boothby. The lead writer on Simpsons for the last uh, and, uh, years now. Hmm? He's been doing it since like 2000. Oh it's been at least 15 years yeah. Ian's been doing it. I know that uh, he and I used to trade off issues that I do one and then he'd do one and then I do yeah, one and he'd do one. Yeah. Um, uh, honestly, goodness, it's just name a character I've at some point written and drawn him. I've, I've been doing this for 35 years. So. There's literally nothing I haven't worked on. I'm currently working on Star Trek, um, and uh, I think I have a Star Trek series coming up next year. Is it original? In the sense that I'll be drawing it new, yes. Oh, I meant the original. <laughs> I meant the original. Is it, are, we talking, are we talking Shatner? Oh, yeah, we're talking the Shatner version of that. that that's what I need to know. Uh, yeah, and, and, I, and Andy Ty's work from, what, Stig's Inferno, which is a fantastic Yeah, that's story. absolutely nobody in the room knows about it. Oh, it's, it, it's, that's the good stuff. Not that the other stuff isn't the good stuff, I just haven't read it yet. <laughs> uh, um, so anyway, I, uh, I mostly work in, in, in just indie comics, and I, uh, I did a book called King City and Multi Warheads, and uh, I relaunched Rob Liefeld's Profit uh, in the last couple years, and it just ended, and I co-edit, along with my friend Emma Rios, a comics anthology called Island. Gary. Gary. Oh. Uh, well, I've been doing comics since oh, a long time as well. Not not as long as Ty, I guess, but... Uh, I'm old, though. Since 98, 99, probably 99-ish. Um, but I broke it as a penciler, and then... Um, this panel is about breaking into comics, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I broke in as a penciler, uh, and I knew I wanted to... I, I knew from my being a fan of comics all my life that if you don't start writing immediately, people will never think you're actually a writer. So... With, as soon as I started penciling, I was like, I want to write. And uh, my editor at the time, Axel Alonso, now editor-in-chief, just a big shot, um, was like, it's really hard to write. Everyone wants to write. And so I just wrote something. And he was like, oh, great. OK. I guess you can write. And so I just started uh, writing and drawing immediately. And I worked on um, Spider-Man, Hulk, some X-Men stuff. I just finished, um, for Marvel, I just finished writing and drawing Iron Fist. Living Weapon, last big 12 issue run. And uh, this past year, I have my very first creator owned comic book for Image Comics, I'm very excited about, called Renato Jones, The 1%. Um, but yeah, I do, I do a little bit of everything. I pencil, I ink my own stuff, I color my own stuff, I write my own stuff, I do fake ads for my Renato Jones book, I do logo design. Like, I, I love the whole of comics. And, uh, you know, I think when you can, the more aspects you can do, the more you can take ownership of your work in, you know. The more creative you can be, the more control you have. It's fun. Correct me if I'm wrong. You did a couple of covers for my book, didn't you? Which book? Which book? One of the Batman books I did. You did. I've never done a Batman book actually. Oh, okay. I did. I did. But you know, here's a funny thing. When I was trying to break into comic books, um, I was going to art school in Calgary, and I was like, I'm going to quit art school because I want to be a comic book artist, and they want me to make sculptures out of cheese. <laughs> it's a different kind of art. 
I love that kind of installation gallery art. Wrap up a bridge of paper, amazing. It's, I love it. Not what I want to do. Quit art school and I just um, was drawing comics and trying to break in and Ty was at a show in Calgary way back when. I think it was the Alberta Comic Collectors Association, the first show. And I got my first ever convention sketch from Ty over here. Probably has no memory of this. The oh, Batman yes. sketch. Oh no, it was Nick, Nick Fury. Nick Fury sketch. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was, uh, and what I ended up doing is I ended up moving back to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan and living in my mom's laundry room for one year, not making any money, listening to the tumbling washer and dryer all day while I worked all night and uh, just decided to just, just like break into comics. And it took about a year of just like doing nothing but drawing and writing comics, sometimes at first all the time for free and then slowly getting paid and then slowly breaking into the bigger publishers. That show actually has a breaking into comics story at it. Because in that Calgary show, I was approached by a young man who brought me a comic book that he had self-published called The Privateers. And, <laughs> and he showed me... Young, the, young man. Yeah. Tom? This, yeah, Tom was young. And he showed me this book, The Privateers, and I was flipping through it. I went, wow, you're really good. Uh, how long have you been doing this for a living? And he goes, I, I don't do it for a living. I publish this myself. And I went, oh, let me get on the phone with somebody then. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, uh, I literally walked him over to a bank of phones, and I called one of my editors at DC, and I said, hi, I found your new Wonder Woman artist for you. Uh, the guy's name was Tom Grumman. And he literally had the Wonder Woman gig by Monday. And Tom has repeatedly thanked me for, for doing this for him, and I keep saying, Tom, you got the job. I just happened to be in the room when you were showing me the work. But it, had that work not been sent along to the office and been as good as I claimed it was, he wouldn't have gotten the job. Yeah, that's, also, that's actually a, an earlier show because... Oh, was it? Oh, actually, sorry. when I was still in high school, 15 or maybe, maybe I was not only in high school yet, I was invited to go to Tom Gurman's house. He was the only other comic book artist from Saskatoon, the only working comic book artist. And it was like, when I was like 10 or 12, I don't know how old he was, I was like, I didn't really think you could do it living in Saskatoon because it felt, felt so like big, and well, amazing, un unreachable. And, and then he, was, he showed me it wasn't and then... I, when I started breaking in, I actually moved into his studio for a little while. Wow, that's cool. Uh, when I was a kid, there was a guy local to Toronto who lived in a little small town outside of Toronto called Oshawa, uh, who was drawing the X-Men, a guy named John Byrne. And it, it, it mattered to me that the guy doing the X-Men lived about 30 minutes from my house and that you could drive over there and talk to him and he wasn't the asshole he is nowadays. He would have kicked you out. <laughs> I was, I was Sorry if that was a shock to people. <laughs> Brandon, before you jump into the thing, I want Pia to. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> tell people what you. Tell people oh, what you do. Oh well, on the lot of times when I was trying to break in here with Heidi, uh, there were several books like Books of Magic and Dad Age to a Hero, I think was one, and uh, a bunch of other ones that always kind of almost there, but every time the pitch went upstairs, it would get a rejection, and so. Um, this went on for a while. Then around 2000, I got a call from Heidi saying, I have this one more pitch I want you to try. And I'm like, okay, what is this one? I'm like, uh, it's got a lot of women in it. Do you mind drawing a lot of women? Okay, what's this about? Because the year before, there was a it, there was a comic which was all the female superheroes doing a book together. And it's very silly, and I'm like, I don't want to do anything like that. And But I read the pitch, and it was Wild Last Man. And I was really, really impressed with the story and what Brian's plans were for it. And I said, sure, let's do it. And we went through the whole process of fishing, and it got greenlit. And we went, and it did a lot better than anyone thought it would, so it was kind of nice. 
and the absolute edition, uh, second edition, which just came out last week, so it should be in stores soon. So the third one will be probably coming out later this year, or next year, sorry. Thanks. Go ahead, Brandon, you had, I could tell you what up with what you wanted to say. I, I just like shit talking John Byrne stories. So. <laughs> <laughs> I met him once, yeah, he was a dick then, too. <laughs> oh, he wasn't always a dick, he grew into being one. Yeah, well, this is from Wonder Woman days when he was boasting he was doing three pages a day, and it showed. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you this, though. I was an anchor for John Byrne for a while, and the way he got away with doing those pages a day is because uh, I was inking over him on Superman for a while. And um, uh, you couldn't tell which character was Lois and which one was Clark. And in his, in his sketches, he would put little L's and C's over their heads so you'd know who was Lois and who was Clark. And sometimes um, you didn't know if Superman was flying or standing on the ground because there was no background to speak of. So when I was thinking over John, I used to go through old issues of the X-Men and swipe drawings of Scott Summers and Gene Gray, because at least those looked like John Byrne drawings. I could at least match the style of John Byrne. And uh, I had somebody ask me once uh, why all of John Byrne's anchors inked him so wildly differently. And it was like, because John wasn't really present. No. It was blank pages that John had rubbed at some point. <laughs> <laughs> and it was sad, because it just seemed like he just didn't really want to be there. It's like, so why are you here? I get it, I get it. it's money, but you know, it's there are two you could do something else and feel good about it. That's, that's um, an interesting thing me and Robin were not sorry to cut you off, Bea. No, it's okay. Uh, me, and, me and Robin were talking earlier about how something something interesting on a breaking in a comics panel would be about kind of a planned trajectory in comics because it seems like a lot of people kind of get into comics and then there, there's, there's a few standard directions people go and a lot of people use it as kind of a stepping stone to another career. Uh, Akari's done a lot of film work. And a lot of people use it as kind of like accidentally fall into not doing comics, but because in a lot of ways it's easier. Once you have comic book fame, as comical of an idea that is, once you, you, it's a lot easier to make money doing less work. And then you get guys like, I don't know, like a J. Scott Campbell or something who just does like pinups and things and, and doesn't do comics. I've never seen this as a stepping stone to another business. I never have. I absolutely love comics. The reason well, this you're also, I mean, you're coming from an, uh, an older side of it where it's like, you know, I, I remember looking up to uh, a lot of the, the, the old school veterans who were like, this is something you, they clearly want to be doing with their lives. They've been doing it for 20, 30, 40 years, and they love doing it, and they're not, and yeah, this is the stepping stone. The stepping stone thing is recent. Yeah. This is the last like 20 years or so because of, the, because of movies and television, and you can see them coming a mile away. Like, oh yeah, they're, they're not interested in comics. They want to go to TV, and you don't want to work with them because they're not, in, they're not invested. I get approached by people all the time who tell me that they want to make a comic book because that is the next step to making yeah, a movie. Yeah, I've heard that too. And uh, uh, I don't know if you guys know the guys that did Kill Shakespeare, the, the Kill Shakespeare magazine that came out a couple years ago. Uh, they approached me with the whole package and asked me what they should do with it. As I was flipping through it, I went, well, you clearly mean this to be a movie, because I'm reading it. It's very much a movie. And they went, I know, but we can't get a movie deal, so what we're going to do is we're going to get a comic book deal, because then we'll get a movie yeah, deal. Yeah, and the thing, the thing about it is all these projects are connected. I've, I've seen dozens of these. Lots and lots of pitches from people said, "Oh, I think it'd be great for this because we think it'll go on to make a great TV show or a great movie, and this is a, it's, it's a wonderful direction." And it's like, no, what you've got here is a really crappy script that couldn't make it into just pitching it into to become a script for television. You just think that this is your way in. 
So go write a better script and don't bother me because you're not interested in making a comic book. Right. That's what I'm here for. To be clear. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear. <laughs> Tourist. I think I think I think the I think the kind of uh, creative animal we're talking about are specifically writers. I there is no stepping stone from comic book penciler. Well, that's not true. Yeah, that's comic book penciler. Where, where do you go? Stephen, Stephen, all the '90s uh, image guys to, are all to, now to like storyboard artists. artists. Yeah, yeah. But guys who like everyone makes listen. fun of their storytelling are all storyboard artists in movies everyone likes now. Which yeah, is hilarious. but <laughs> let, let me just let me just say that you you can get hired as a storyboard artist without drawing comics. Like, it's, there's no. There's, you can get good at drawing because when you draw comics, you have to draw fast, you have to draw well, you have to draw people. And when you're a storyboard artist, you have to draw fast, you have to draw well. Uh, maybe you can draw some kind of people-ish people. If but, you're able to suggest a storytelling, you don't even have to draw that well. I've done storyboarding, mm -hmm. and it's, it's easy as anything. Right. <laughs> but let me just say. So let me just say that there. I don't. I've never seen someone who like becomes a comic artist to become something else. Like, it's just, there's no, but there is, a, there is a lot of people who have become comic writers that then move on and out to do something else, like the Wachowski brothers, who were comic writers and then started writing movies and then created The Matrix and all that sort of things. And there is, there is a feeling among writers that perhaps a way to break into film and TV, so hard, so competitive, can be two comics, and I, and it, you have seen that happen. Robert Kirkman, Walking Dead, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but I, I just don't believe that the artist. There's no path. But I mean, you, you have to be crazy to be a comic artist because it it pays well, but it's not like you know. I mean, it's okay money. It's just not like well, the advantage is freedom. I think I was, really I was talking to some movie people recently, and that was it was just become like incredibly unappealing when you start thinking about. Uh, you know, because because like I haven't worked with an editor since I had the ability to not work with an editor, and the idea of, of working in something where there's actual money involved and actual like yeah. people restricting your your like I can do the dumbest thing ever and no one will ever. It's like the Emperor's New Clothes. Like I can just like I could just draw like a dick on every page of my comic and no one would stop it. But not just that. Like I, so freedom. So 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 also as. As, as someone who has a, another life that directs film and television, um, I came into that position without comic completely. That was a separate concurrent path that I chose to follow to the point where still today when I direct a film or television episode, people don't know I draw comics. And still lots of people in comics don't know I direct as well. So that was a separate path that I built for myself. And I stay in comics because I love the medium. I grew up reading comics since before I could read. It's like, I will never leave it. It's so powerfully creative in comics. Like, when you're a kid, you imagine directing a movie as, like, you act every scene, you write, you write all the music, you create all the props, you do all that stuff, and it's just not true. In a movie, the director manages the machine, and hopefully they can have a vision that informs that machine that they are managing. Um, but the one medium where you can create every prop, uh, act every scene, write every line, create that is comic books. Like when I draw a comic book, it's so fast, it's so powerful. I can just create without abandon. And there's no notes from anyone. Even working at Marvel, very little notes. But when you do a movie, just because of the money, and you have layers of executives that don't know how to do anything but need their jobs, and so they just start giving you notes. 
I turn of notes. I was I was talking to Chuck Dixon, the very prolific comic book writer, a couple of days ago, and I was suggesting to him, you know, uh, he should be doing more screenplays and television work because it would introduce him to millions of people in an audience instead of hundreds of thousands of people. And his response was, "Yeah, but then it wouldn't be all mine." As soon as I, I've written a couple of screenplays myself, uh, I, I wrote an episode of the, the Robocop TV show. Don't watch it; it's a crappy episode. But um, <laughs> no, no, the live action. Do you remember? <laughs> no, Robocop, yeah, like the TV series. Remember? No, I, yeah, nobody remembers it. It's fine. <laughs> but the point I'm making is... It's amazing the heroes guys have seen Robocop. Yeah, the, the point I'm making is when I, when I worked on that Robocop episode, it went through about seven different drafts, and there was, yeah. a, there was a showrunner who basically said, could you do me a favor and take out the best beat in your script? I want you, We like Jaws, but does it have to be a shark for it to be a raccoon? It was basically that level of dumb. And, and when it was finished, I actually handed it to the producer and I finally went, if you need another rewrite of this, get someone else to do it because I can't keep butchering my own work like that. So I get why it's so much more appealing to work in comics because yes, it is, especially I write and draw my own stuff, so I don't have anyone looking over my shoulder except maybe my editor and if he hired me, he probably likes what I do. And I, I, at one point I worked on a, a series that was being edited by Fabian Nicieza and uh, every month the only note I got from him was, oh, it was great, do us another one next month. And so, since I was actually lettering that book as well, I stopped crediting him as editor, and I started crediting him as benign neglect. <laughs> that's, that's what he did. He just simply left me alone. I'll say one thing, though, that like, um, I know a lot of TV writers and film writers, and um, uh, strangely enough, they don't, no one knows who they are. They don't have names. I mean, name for me, the, the showrunner of Lucifer, quick. For what? Lucifer. The showrunner for Lucifer? Lucifer. She was here in Vancouver, a top-rated show, just got renewed, great writer, no one knows. Name for me the writer, but the current writer of X-Men, whoever that is. You probably have an answer of someone who's written X-Men, if not the current writer. That is a, it's a more anonymous industry, the writing of TV anyways, yeah. if you're not in the industry. The cool thing about comics is, because there's only three components to a machine, or one component sometimes, right? If you're writing and drawing your own stuff, People, you get these weird bubbles of like people know who you know who you are more right. than in film or TV or animation. I always refer to our business as we're arguably like being the world's most famous miniature golfers. <laughs> <laughs> that if you're into miniature golf, you totally know who the greatest miniature golfers are in the world, but nobody outside of the miniature golf world would know it. That's exactly yeah, yeah. So I, I, can, I can putt through the window like a mother. When, I, when, I, met my, when I met my wife, I was, I was like, I was like I'm, I'm actually quite famous. Very small, isolated, tiny parts. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the times Oh man, you guys got to get elephant tattoos on your necks. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I've, I've only ever been once asked to sign an autograph when I wasn't at a comic convention, and I was blown away by the fact that it was somebody who recognized me from one of the TV shows that I did. And was it was it Robocop? No. <laughs> no, I, I used not regularly. But um, to me, that was the, the proof that comic book artists, because I've been doing this for 30 years, I was only active for about three, but he actually recognized me from a television show. And that was a big deal to him. It was like, oh, I completely forgot I did that television show, because it didn't mean much to me, because I only did that for the money. But you get way more attention if you're on someone's TV, because you're in their house. Right. Oh, if you're an actor. If you're an actor, yeah. 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 I'm, I'm interested in Pia's relationship with editorial because I remember hearing rumors about it being. I don't want this story, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it was just a, just a confluence of, of things that happened because when Y came, came about, 
Um, uh, I think Heidi and Karen were starting to get a little testy with each other. At least, like they were always combative at some point. And uh, and uh, but that Brian just came off Swamp Thing, which wasn't very well received by by many. At least, you know. They I I want to create a fictional thing that their their entire beef was about their names being McDonald and Burger. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think it was that. I had to do like that. Um, but, I, but a lot of times when I was pitching and stuff, I don't think Karen just didn't like my art. So when there was a pitch that came in that had both me and Brian and Heidi helming it, I think it was more of like, okay, let's give them, give, give them a chance and see what they take. We don't have to deal with them ever again. And they really made it difficult. Uh, for Brian, he had to prove that he had 60 issues of story in this because Karen wanted it to be a four-issue miniseries. I was like, no, this is this should be longer. It's okay, prove it. You write up a Bible for all 60 issues. And he did it. And it's like, okay. And then I was on and I started to draw it. And the very first splash page, I was asked to redraw it five times just to make the horizon a little more in a tilt. And it was almost vertical by the time I got to the fifth, the fifth go-round. Is this why you work digitally now? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it makes more sense now. I'm just so glad the technology's caught up. I would have loved to have worked uh, digitally on this book. But uh, yeah, and I think it was more like I was so frustrated, I was so angry, and I talked to Heidi, like, why is she doing this? What's wrong? And he's like, trust me, once you, once you uh, do this, she'll, you'll never hear from her again. She will, she will do this to a lot of people that she just wants to push. And I did it, never heard from her again. She never had an ounce of feedback for me ever from the whole run That's that. such a bizarre yeah. thing because it's, it's like it, it just means that it's not they're just trying to break you it's not about quality. Yeah. Well, it is, uh, well that, it is, sorry. that is entirely what they're trying to do. They're trying yeah. to see if you're somebody who they can work with and then once they understand That's that you are. Work with or work no. over? No, I mean, <laughs> yeah, because it's difficult because at that point you're just like, like, how do you not hate someone after they do that to you? Yeah, just, exactly. And then as we had a six month lead in, and as we were doing uh, issue four, and we still had two more issues to go before the first issue was going to be released, then Heidi got canned. And so we were furious, but she kept saying, no, just keep, stay on it, keep going, keep going. And then when that was done, they hired my anchor, and I'm like, Jose, you got to fight for this, and he did, and they managed to keep him. So we, we fought every single step of the way. That's a lot of comfort. Yeah, and then when the issue came out, it was only a seventeen thousand print run. Back then, fifteen thousand was the cutoff. There was no, there was very little advertising being done for the book. So we knew right away this is gonna, this is being railroaded to tank. And so it wasn't until issue three when. DC started getting calls from shops saying, we need more of these because we're getting people wanting to read more of these. That's when they, they kind of were really surprised. What's weird is like, I had the opposite interaction with editors from Marvel, mostly Axel, maybe because I think Axel's, I think he's the greatest editor I've worked with. And, uh, <laughs> no, honestly, and it's, I hate yeah, that he and him don't get along too well. Oh, oh really? <laughs> well, the reason I have never worked with. I don't like editors, I think. Uh, but when Axel, he, the uh, he uh, there, there never was notes. There never was changes, there never was revisions, there was just support and uh, praise. I don't know, but it's, it's, it's hard because now he's editor-in-chief and in a way it's like I can now I'm editor anymore, I can't take advantage of it. It's like I feel abandoned and sad and that's why I started. I, I want to go back to the thing you said, we were saying earlier about, about, um, about uh, kind of everyone wanting to be writers in comics. Because I'm, I'm very more and more I've developed the theory that if you do sequential storytelling, like that's that's writing, and it's really I feel like it's a rarer, it's a rarer creator who can do good storytelling and 
and can't write because because it's essentially comic book writing. And I'm, I'm really amazed when I find someone who does who does single creator storytelling and doesn't have something to say. Hey man, in the 80s, my favorite guys were writer artists. Frank Beller, Howard Chaikin, Will Simonson, the list goes on and on and on. You go back to uh, Will Eisner, I mean, even the newer guys, Todd McFarlane, even, I mean, like, come on. It's like, but it's what's weird is... I like that you call Todd a newer guy. <laughs> well, when I was a kid. But what's weird is that... Um, the last time he drew a comic was like 20 years ago. I don't know. But what's, here's what's weird is com the comic machine has become so uh, component-driven where because of the amount they're making, you are either a pencil or an inker or a colorist or a writer. And it's, it's, it's not normal to do both. Like I don't know if inkers so much exist anymore. There's still those. Colorists are kind of what inkers were now. Because I mean, you can, you can there's you know, people like Frank Quiley with straight pencil or Adam Warren or yeah. those people. Yeah, but, um, what's, but what you're saying is true. If you can pencil a panel, one image, Sure, you can pencil two images. Something's happening. If you can pencil six panels, well, that's one page. You just written yourself a page. I'm sure you could do that 20 times. Well, that's an issue. If you could do that once, I'm sure you could do that five times. That's a trade. Like I, I, I love so, how easy that was. I get so, I get so, I get so. It, it actually, um, there's a big thing in social media right now where artists are like, every day they do a warm-up drawing, and then they do commissions, and then they do all this extra drawing. The whole time being like, oh, why, why can't I write my own stuff? I'll tell you why. Because I'm doing all that other drawing. Stop it. I think it's well, uh, there's, there's a couple of things there. I mean, one, there's artists who just want to draw. They don't want to. Unless you're They Sorry. don't always have a story in that they, they feel like they feel confident enough to, to bring out from beginning to end. To end. But then there's these other artists who, you know, they work, especially when they're new and they're they're hot, and they're going through it, and they're and they're getting better at it, and they get better, and they're continuously getting better. And there's a point where they realize the scripts they're working with aren't getting better, or maybe they're working with a lot of different writers, and write the styles or the, the writing styles are either less than one's worse than the other, one is not so good, one is okay, maybe one's never going to be that one writer that you work with that you love working with, and you realize I should just be doing this myself. It just makes more a sense. That's mm -hmm. when that, that moment clicks, and that's yeah. when the writer wants to, or the artist wants to become a writer too. I'm just tired of bad scripts. I'd like to throw this out though. Uh, writing is a skill. It's it's not something you can just simply decide to do. There are terrible writers. Um, just like comics, you say. Anywhere. Um, you know, um, uh, I won't say his name because he's about to look bad in the story, but I was approached by a very skilled artist who most of the people in the room know um, who wanted to do some writing and he brought me a script for to give me notes. And as nicely as I can put it, I said, you should just draw. Because the script was appalling. It was everything that you could possibly get wrong in a script. He got wrong in it. Did it, and, did it start with a guy at a podium giving a speech on the first page? That's my least favorite way to start any comic. Oh, he probably found worse ways. The, um, the, the idea that um, just by osmosis we become good writers, uh, to me, is not, I mean, you, you lucky that you are a good writer, but it, it's not going to, the lightning's not gonna hit every artist who wants to draw. Right, and I, don't, I actually don't, I, I agree with you, but I think that, you, you know, to become a writer you have to write. And if you, if you disallow yourself to attempt to write, because it's this thing you could never do until you're a famous artist, you've never built up those skills so that when you hand a script off to yourself, the writing is probably horrible because it's the first time. And the first time any of anything is, is probably going to be horrible, whether you're playing basketball or making a cake. Or a friend of mine's a, a, a pop singer, 
and uh, he gave me one of the best advice, um, and the best piece of advice in the world about writing. He said, uh, this is about writing music, but he said, uh, everybody's got about 50 really bad songs in them and you should write them first. <laughs> because your first 50 songs are gonna suck. That's the point he was making. Your 51st one is gonna suddenly be a little better because you kinda now know what you're doing. But the first 50 are gonna be terrible. So the first you know, dozen scripts I wrote were terrible. And I'm lucky that no one saw them. They didn't get published and you know, I showed them to friends and they were terrible. But I, I do want to sort of disabuse people of this notion that you can become a writer by just waking up one morning and saying, I'm a writer now, because it's, it's not as simple as that. Right, but I, I would also suggest that you become a writer by writing. So yeah. if that's what you want to do, you have to get started now and I'd not also, wait. I'd also say that writing is one of the weird, rare things that you can actually, that reading actually, uh, like I don't think many mediums are, are work as well as uh, just consuming the stuff like like I think just kind of reading a ton tends to help writing uh, at least at least for me it tends to right which is again the proof that it's a skill because the more you expose yourself to other people doing it the more you learn and therefore oh, so the more you're able to apply it whereas art for instance in some people's cases is an actual talent um, I myself am taught to draw because I started off as a writer and I eventually taught myself to draw. But um, uh, I don't know how many people here know the work of Kyle Baker, um, uh, cartoonist from the 90s, and you know everything. This guy, this guy. <laughs> but, uh, Kyle, I should get here. Uh, Kyle Baker was a, uh, is still, but he was a very, very, very talented artist. He drew the shadow for a while for DC. And I was next to him at a convention once, and I was watching him do a convention sketch for somebody, and he started off with an ink marker, no pencil, and he started inking in the shadow's hat. And then he got about a third of the way through the hat, and then he started drawing part of the gun, and then he got tired of that. And then he went over here and he started drawing part of the shoulder. And by the time he was finished, it was like a jigsaw puzzle. It all fit together in a really beautiful drawing. And I said, how the hell do you do that? Because I have to construct, build the big masses, you know, construct the figure. And he goes, oh, I look at the paper until I see a picture, and then I trace it. So to hell with him. <laughs> because that's not something you can be taught to do. So clearly his brain just knows how to do that the way that my brain is not, and most artists' brains do not. I was told a story about Kyle Baker where I think it was Dean Haspel told me that um, the first time that he was on the way to go show his portfolio at Marvel, he was taking the train in New York on the way there, and he saw Baker leaned up against the subway door inking a Spider-Man page. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. they're beautiful. He's, he's some of the best. Yeah, he's one of my favorite inkers on Spider-Man. Yeah, he's, he's amazing. Kyle Riley, famously, uh, he misread a calendar, and he thought he had a book due something like on the 20th of something, and it was actually due on the 2nd, so he was off by three weeks, and uh, found this out about three days before it was due, and penciled and inked an entire 22-page story in three days. Oh, crazy. And um, you can't tell. He also when you did read, that. When you read that issue, it's as good as his other ones, which right. made me think, what the hell do you do all the time? You can draw an entire comic book in three days. He's practicing his mini golf. He's practicing his mini golf. Um, that windmill is tough. Not to show that you can do it, but to, for an artist to understand that they can do it. Mm. Yeah. They can pull off something. Because it, it, it was Kirby, I think, who had an assignment to do uh, an issue, like it was, it was after. Uh, is it Captain America or something? And he said, okay, we are really stuck. We need, we need an issue in seven days. And he did it. And, uh, and everyone was like, what? So it's just that whole exercise of like, yeah, you can do this if you really have to. But you could probably only do it once. 
um, most people anyway. I mean, it's really hard to do. I know a friend, who, uh, a mutual friend, uh, who, who likes to push his deadlines a lot, and he does manage to squeeze them out in a week or so, but it's hard. You're talking about more time? Yes. <laughs> yeah. he, he does, uh, he just did Constantine, I think, with Hellblazer, I guess it's called that. And he, he literally takes an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and folds it in half and does two pages on that. And they blow it up to print it. Yeah. Uh, 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 Leonard Kirk, who did FF for last year, Leonard Kirk draws his pages. Is that, is that his Star Trek fan name? No, his real name is Leonard Kirk. Um, he used to draw Star Trek too, which was kind of amusing. But anyway, Leonard, uh, when he was doing the Fantastic Four, he would draw them at print size because he said it made them go faster. Mm -hmm. And um, amazingly enough, he would then send those as pencils to his inkers, blown up to 11 by 17, because the inkers had no idea he was actually penciling at print size. And at print size, he could pencil five to six pages a day. That was, my, that was my biggest problem when I was starting out in comics was because when I was a kid copying my own comics and making comics, I thought that was print size. That, that, that was the drawing size you did. Yeah. And so when someone gave me an L my 17 sheet, like, well, what do I do with this? And you draw three pages Yeah, and it was really hard. It was like you have to really learn to like move your hands and like doing little tiny finger kind of like, you know, move Maybe it's worth noting too that when Jack Kirby was drawing those pages, the, this, the a week of comics, his pages are gigantic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I actually still do. I still draw them in my first draft at print size because you can draw, I can do about 10 pages a day at print size, but then you have to blow them up to ink them. I just can't ink at that size anymore. I used to when I was in my 20s and I still had eyes. <laughs> I'm, always, I'm always fighting the mad dash in comics. I feel like if I do like four pages a week, it's a very good week for me. Yeah, Good com Lord. Comments are, comments are tough, man. I don't, tough. I, you know, I'm just growing old and won't have kids. Uh, how, how many people here want to work in comics? Does anyone here want to work in comics? How many of you want to write comics? Most of it. And how many of you want to draw comics? Okay, so, uh, so about a two, two to one ratio? Maybe actually, you should be asking some questions in case anybody asks. Be, before we do that, I was actually going to offer one piece of advice about making comics that um, this panel is supposed to be about. Um, we have an advantage now in 2016 that we never had before, which is you can be your own publisher without after having used print ever. You can create a website and put the comic book up on a website that looks exactly as pretty as the Marvel website or the DC website does. And if there is real meritocracy to this, if you produce work that is good, you will get noticed fairly quickly. It is... Um, uh, People pass it around by word of mouth and uh, forward it to other people. Um, I don't know if anybody here reads Cyanide and Happiness, but um, the guys who did that, when they first started putting it out, they were amazed that most of the people reading it were not reading it on their website, but were reading it on Facebook, because friends were taking it, forwarding it to other friends on Facebook. And they said at one point that they were getting about 20,000 readers on their website and something like a half a million around the web. Because if you're any good, Somebody here in the room is going to say, hey, I just read this really cool thing and forward it to you. So that advantage exists now in a way that it didn't before, where you had to be in print and you had to be in a store and you had to be on sale, and now you don't. So if you guys want to be comic book writers and artists, as Carrie just said a couple of moments ago, just do it and put it up online. And don't worry about you know, getting together six issues worth before you get started. Don't worry about whether or not you think it's good enough. Just start doing it. That's not an incentive. Uh Right now, Marvel has a policy where they don't take submissions anymore. So, um, the, and they're, they just really want to discourage that because everybody wants to break in. There's they get thousands of, of people trying to break in, and it's a uh, it's a lot of work for them. Well, let, let me just say something as a little life hack. 
and just don't listen to that. Just email your favorite editor. There's that. Get their email address. And they'll write back and don't, don't send it to me, send it to CB Sobolski or whoever's doing it now. They're the official guy, but, but they'll still see it. And then you do it again next time. I, I think, I think and you're then you do it again next month. Actually, you're like, listen, kid, go send it to CB Sobolski. I'm sick of time, and you do it again next month. And then they're like, oh, you're really getting better. <laughs> you know, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. There's a friend of mine named Adam Gorham from Toronto, and uh, he did the exact same thing where he sent his work into a group of editors, and I said to him, don't do it more than once a month, because you will irritate them if you do it more than once a month, but once a month, send them three new pages to show them that you mean it. And he did that for about six months, and he's currently drawing on Okay, I want to let Pia finish what she's going to say. Sorry. Okay, that is the general way of going about it. You, especially if you see, you find an editor, you develop a relationship, and you send regular, regular submissions every six weeks or so. But as far as Marvel goes, they don't want to see submissions anymore. At least it, they used to have a submission editor, they don't anymore. What they do now is they look at what you're doing. If you're putting something out there on a website or publishing something on your own, and people are noticing it, they'll notice it. And when they notice it and they see it and they like it, they'll call you. So but also, yes, email those specific editors at Marvel. <laughs> I think yes. because I work at Marvel, okay, or with Marvel. My to vote to the whole you know, self-publishing thing. Look, yeah. here's an extra incentive to do this, because if you do this, you will probably get noticed by the right people. Here's the other funny thing about... The way to do it, the main way to do it, is to contact the editor directly, yes. No, but the other way, it also, can also be beneficial because... So, I can think of a thousand instances where a writer and artist didn't have... Um, Maybe they weren't quite technical enough to work at a Marvel or whatever, but because of that limitation, they created the Ninja Turtles and became billionaires, you know, for a time. You know, there, there can be big advantages to doing your own work. Um, right, some of, okay. us, some of us turn okay. down lots of work for Marvel and DC all the time because yeah. those places are the, the guy, horrible. Okay, I'm going to say something. Sure. I'm going to be moderator here. Is a big part of what he's saying. It, and kind of like the same about Pia and Kari is if everyone did email those editors directly, they will stop looking at these submissions because they're going to get too much. I get too much email. I know Brandon hasn't replied to me an email for me in about a year and a half. I'm not talking to you. Yeah, there we go. I have to I have to text them to get a reply to something. Um, and it, it's it, I think you have to have like a pragmatic approach of finding what works. And one of the most important things is probably direct connections. So instead of just being a face or a name in an email, make that face contact. Get to know who these folks are. And Marvel's also really kind of weird because they're taking a lot of their work from Italy now. Yeah, I know. Brazil, and South America. Asia, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It becomes like kind of a In the 70s, country. it was the Philippines. Um, and they don't take writers from there, too, which is really weird because they're, they're all... <laughs> well, no, they don't speak English over there. Yeah. But um, it's, a friend of mine, Marcio Takara, uh, was living in Toronto for a while. And he was pushing himself onto Marvel, and Marvel wasn't paying much attention. He was getting a little work at Boom. Um, and then he figured out, because he was Brazilian, he moved back to Brazil. Now he draws Iron Man. <laughs> so they really do like the people whose names end in vowels, because they don't have to pay them as much. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of the worst. Sad truth. Because if you live in, if you live in Sao Paulo, your, your rent isn't as much. So you'll take a smaller pay rate. And if Marvel has to choose between hiring me or hiring the guy from Sao Paulo, who will take 50 bucks a page less than me, he'll take the guy from Sao Paulo. So uh, the best piece of advice I can give you is learn to speak Portuguese and <laughs> move to Brazil. I, I have a question to go with that is uh, one thing, this is actually a question from Brandon earlier when we were kind of writing some more questions, is what do you do to not get taken advantage of? Um, because it is very easy 
for comics to take advantage of you. I mean, kill Shakespeare. Um, the artist doesn't own that. The writers do. Because um, he was a hired gun, though. It, with the entire a hired gun that did every issue. Come. Say again. A, a hired gun that did every issue. That they never. No, he said they that did they every issue. Did every issue. issue. Right. No, but he was a hired gun. Uh, believe me, I saw the package for Kill Shakespeare before the artist got there. It was entirely intact. You're you're kind of missing what I'm going for. Is what do we do? What do you do as artists? So you don't get stuck in a situation where you're... you're saying, how do you, you, how do you avoid getting on a, a kill Shakespeare? No, but the thing is, he wasn't being taken advantage of. He was work for hire, and he knew what he was doing going into it, and he did it. The, um, the, other, the other thing I'll say to you is, actually, um, if you approach the world with wide-eyed gusto and get taken advantage of, so what? Because if you're any good, you'll have another opportunity. If you only have one opportunity in life, you weren't good enough to make it anyway. So if you get taken advantage of by guy A, learn from it and go on and work with guy B. Because you can't be a cynical mercenary from the minute you get started or people won't want to work with you. But there is that, but there's also the idea that you know, when you're starting out, this is why you go to panels like these to find out there are these things called contracts and you should ask for them always and don't take a person's word for it and make sure that, they're, they're, that it's tight. Talk to someone, talk to a lawyer if you have a lawyer, friend, someone who is in the business and looking at the contract. Oh yeah, this is good, you're protected here. And if you're not, then don't do it. You can still do your own stuff and do other things, but if, if you know going in that this is going to obviously take advantage of you and you don't want to be taken advantage of, then don't do it. It's, it's really just that simple because it's not worth the grief. So, I mean, yeah, you could give you some experience and give you some exposure, but I this is more of a warning for artists, because I find often, um, I mean, when you're a young writer, you need an artist to draw that book for you, and you probably don't have money, and that part of you that wants to be successful and created that concept yourself wants, doesn't want to share it. It's just human nature. And sometimes uh, you can attract an artist to the project by offering to split it 50-50 and you both work for no money even though that artist is doing seven times the labor you're doing. <laughs> and sometimes that's fair. And sometimes it's not. And sometimes um, you just have to... I don't know, man. It's, it's a little tough, but the amount of people that have been screwed over uh, is fractionally small, I think, in terms of how many people work in the industry. When my first creator run book, I worked the publisher. Who didn't I think a lot of that's definition of screwed over too. Yeah. Sorry, what? I was saying the the definition of screwed over. Like personally, I was going to say that it's really important to me to. I, I want to own the majority of work I do, and like even when I was trying to break in, I was mm -hmm. doing short stories of my own work, and so I could republish them later. I mean, I, I do find it very depressing if somebody spends, you know, their, their life working on a character and they don't own any of it. Like that's yeah no I, w I would agree I mean unless unless it's, unless you love Spider Man and you I know but then it, yeah. you know, things like the Heroes Initiative where people that are old can't support themselves even though they're working for oh, totally. multi million dollar no, companies comic books is a tough is a tough is has a tough history uh, all over sure but I mean the same thing is true of musicians the same thing is true of actors I mean you can't pick any of the arts and say this one is especially unfair I don't think it is and speaking of that idea of working on something you don't own. Um, uh, I worked on Batman for many years. I didn't own it, but it bought me a house. So I, I don't feel bad about my participation in that character's history because I have a lovely house. And, uh, you know, it's the house Batman bought me. So uh, where's the disadvantage there? 
Oh, I, I don't think it's across the board, but I think there are certainly disadvantages. Yeah, I guess. But I mean, I think if you created what, what, Batman, it'd be a different conversation. If I created Batman, you'd be like, I'd be I own a house. Yeah, exactly. Because the guy who created Batman is going to be Bill Figger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Figgerty, you know, that's the other point. You know, and in fact, if anybody cares, I, I did a book about Bill Figger last year called "Bill the Secret Creator Batman." Or even like Kia having good contracts at Vertigo, I think actually messed up. They Vertigo. They have horrible contracts now because I, my understanding of it is they didn't like that you and Brian K. Vaughan got away with the film yeah, rights and your stuff. Because they didn't think that we were going to succeed. They thought we were going to tank. So right, we made exactly. This great contract, and we did all right with it. It's still not enough to buy a house, but especially not in Vancouver anyway. But uh, it's enough to pay my bills, so that, that's nice. Right, so that, that's certainly an advantage, an, an example of you watching your back and not yeah. getting taken advantage yeah, of. But that'll all be in the contract. That'll all be in the contract. I mean, the most important thing in the world is read your contract. I did a Vertigo graphic novel for them, and in my contract it says that if, if it goes out of print for more than seven years, all the rights revert back to me. So every seven years, they put out a small little print. Oh, yeah, I mean. And that is just to screw me. Right, I mean, that's, no, really that's the Washington story all over. It is, yeah, it's a very small-scale version of it. But uh, I remember one of the seven-year intervals, I went, ha-ha, you didn't publish one this year. And they went, yes, we did. It was in Spanish. Are we putting the car before the horse? Uh, do people need more fundamental knowledge on how to break Pierce through the, the barrier? Or what, what do people want to know? How do you break out once you've broken in? <laughs> <laughs> you can't get out. It's like the mob. That's really easy. You just, you just insult Dan the deal. Oh. No, I, 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 I don't think you can. Um, I, I, I've, spent, I've had a pretty lucrative career insulting Dan the deal. But it, I think it's, it's uh, kind of who you want to align yourself with. I've worked very hard to try to piss off people at Marvel and DC, and I was very excited when they when they remembered my name. He, he uh, <laughs> was it? Someone said, "Don't pull a Brandon Graham at a Marvel summit." Oh, Bendis! Bendis called someone a Brandon Graham, and I was like, "He knows who I am." <laughs> um, on that note, uh, thanks everyone for coming. I'm sorry we didn't really give you uh, explicit hands-on knowledge. I feel like we kind of went in a million different directions, but I also enjoyed that. Um, if you have a portfolio that you want to get some advice on, stop on my table. I do them all the time. Yeah, talk to Pia. I don't need lots of advice. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I like looking at portfolios too. It's very easy to look at art. Um, it's quick. It's harder to read stuff. It's, that's the plight of the writer. It takes more time. Yeah, well, breaking as a writer is difficult. I think the best advice for a writer is to try and do short stories. I know you all got a 12 issue epic in your mind that you want to get out there. It's giant, massive. Start small and pitch small and work your way up from there. Because it's a lot easier to find an artist who can commit to a small project instead of your 12 issue volumes. Uh, it's uh, do something small and keep doing more of those. And that's what's going to get noticed more than your very ambitious projects. I think that's, that's good advice for art as well. Yeah. I'd also say this about being a writer. If you want to write comic books, don't write scripts, write comics. And if you want to show them to people, show them to people in comic book yes. form. Because uh, I tell you this, every time I'm at a convention out of town, if somebody hands me a script, I know very well I'm never going to read it. But if they hand me a comic book, I will absolutely read it on the plane coming home. Because I love comics and I read them all the time. And I, I prefer my, my fiction in comic form. So if somebody hands me a little comic book that they printed off the Xerox machine and drew it themselves with sick figures, I'll still read it. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think that's a good, uh, that's actually yeah. when I write for other people, I, I do stick figures essentially. Yeah, I'll do it too. I think that that's across the board for writers and artists. Like if you if you want to break in as a writer, create a real comic book with an artist. If you want to break in as an artist, create a real comic book with a writer or write yourself. But creating that comic book and either sharing it on the internet or by hand as a finished product, that's what will get you the job. Also, the terrifying idea that uh, selling your work and making money off your work is 
not the same thing as making work that's good. And, and those being kind of acknowledged as different skill sets, I think, doesn't happen enough. Oh, marketing, yeah, it's a totally different skill set. Right, right. Okay, thank you, everybody. <laughs>